0: Welcome to the brownstein hyatt farber Shrek podcast series. Among a batch of significant changes to Colorado's employment laws passed this year, a major overhaul to the state's non-compete and restrictive covenant laws take effect on August 10th. The revisions significantly impact how employers protect information like trade secrets, expand coverage to restrictive covenants much more broadly, and significantly alter exemptions and penalties— In this episode, Brownstein's Employment Group breaks down the background of the bill and the changes it brings.
1: Thank you all for joining us today to talk about Colorado's new non-compete statute, which the legislature passed this summer and will become effective on August 10th. With me today are attorneys Kayla Dreyer and Irina Rodriguez. Kayla, could you introduce yourself, please? My name is Kayla Dreyer. I'm
2: a shareholder in the employment group.
3: I'm Irina Rodriguez. I'm a shareholder in the intellectual property group at Brownstein.
1: Glad to be together today. And I'm Martine Wells. I am also a shareholder at Brownstein, and I specialize in employment litigation. So, Kayla, you were very involved in the background of the bill. What can you tell us about how this came to pass uh, this past summer? Sure. So... Representative Tipper filed HB
2: 22 1216, and it was called the Uniform Restrictive Employment Agreement Act, or some version of that. It was almost identical to the Uniform Law Commission's uniform law that was approved last year, meant to streamline restrictive employment agreements. And when I'm talking about Restrictive employment agreements, in this con- in the uniform law context, they're seeking to cover everything in the restrictive employment space, including non-solicitation of customers or clients, anti-poaching or anti-rating clauses, forfeiture for competition clauses, non-disclosure agreements, reimbursement for training costs agreements, a huge gamut. So Representative Tipper, I don't want to misstate this, but I believe she was very involved in the ULC and in drafting the uniform law for the Uniform Law Commission, and that's uh, that's how HB twenty two twelve sixteen came to pass. Um, that bill stalled upon introduction. There was huge backlash within the business community, and as a result, HB twenty two thirteen seventeen was introduced and ultimately passed.
1: So to level set, for those who don't know as much about the background, there was a Uniform Act that is extremely restrictive that was introduced, but it was not passed, correct? That is correct. Thank you, Martine. And what is the compromise bill we ended up with instead? The compromise bill was
2: 22-13-17, and that was written with the uh, with the assistance of the business community in mind,
1: and what is the high level policy now? What going forward, starting on August tenth?
2: Well, the the high level changes are that Colorado is restricting non compete agreements even more than they already did, and um, they're bringing different types of agreements within the umbrella of non-compete agreements, so that what is traditionally thought of as a quote-unquote non-compete agreement has likely been expanded to include other things like non-solicitation of clients or uh, non-disclosure agreements and uh, uh, reimbursement of training costs agreements.
1: And also, arguably, confidentiality agreements are under the purview of this act now, correct? Correct, yes. And with the new Act, what are the sort of uh, missteps and footfalls that well-meaning employers may make going forward? Well, first, uh,
2: there's a notice requirement that uh, you have to provide sufficient notice to prospective employees or current employees. Um, and and the, the Act sets forth exactly what has to be contained within the notice, now, there's also um, limitations as, as to who can um, be restricted by one of these provisions. It used to be that um, any Colorado employee could conceivably come within the ambit of a non-compete agreement as long as uh, that employee was a management or executive employee or Uh, the agreement was entered into for the protection of trade secrets. Um, Now, the management executive exemption has been completely eliminated. And while the trade secrets requirement still exists, the worker also has to make or earn above a certain income threshold. And that threshold is determined by the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. It's currently set at around $101,000.
1: For a non compete,
2: for a non compete, non compete only, right? And uh, there's also some some statutory penalty language that entitles individuals who have been presented with an unenforceable uh, non compete or signed an unenforceable non compete. And uh, there's also some more uh, statutory restrictions around non-solicitation of customers and, uh, like you mentioned earlier, confidentiality agreements themselves.
1: So before we get into more of the sort of specifics about precisely what has changed, going forward, are there any other sort of high-level considerations employers should keep in mind, such as related to the FTC or Federal Trade Commission?
2: Well, I mean, that's a really good question, Martine. So all of this is coming. And when I say all of this, what I mean is this push in the legal space to restrict non-compete agreements and sort of attendant provisions that one may think about as sort of falling within the ambit of non-compete agreements. This push is, is coming um, from the Biden, Biden administration and the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission policies being very, what I call, anti-anti-competitive. And um, you see this across the country over the past 10 years, uh, where non-competes in most states used to be, I don't want to say regulated, but they used to be limited through judicial decision-making. You now have a hodgepodge of laws varying by states that have been enacted trying to wrestle with the question of how do you make sure that an individual has the ability to work while also protecting companies, trade secrets and confidential information and uh, the investment that they have already put into growing their business. And, And so what you see is this patchwork of laws throughout the country. Um, and I believe that the uniform Law Commission was attempting to <laughs> create something more streamlined but instead just really went to one extreme and pa- ha- have suggested something that's that's not at all tenable or workable and as a result of that the uniform law has been introduced in four states West Virginia Colorado Oklahoma and Vermont and in all of those states have that bill has stalled out in committee.
1: And before we go ahead to more of the specifics and zooming out from a high level, Irina, from your perspective, how does the Colorado, the new Colorado non-compete law dovetail with the Uniform Trade Secret Act and the Colorado Uniform Trade Secret Act?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Martine. And I think the first thing that we should talk about is how is a trade secret defined under the Colorado Uniform Trade Secret Act or CUTSA? And Under CUTSA, trade secret is the whole or any portion or phase of scientific or technical information, design, process, procedure, formula, improvement, confidential business or financial information, listing of names, addresses, or telephone numbers, or any other information relating to any business or profession, which is secret and of value. And I read that whole definition verbatim because one of the things that's come down under this act is that the act specifically says now that confidentiality agreements do not protect information that arises from a worker's general training, knowledge, skill, or experience. But we see all the time non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements that restrict an employee's ability to disclose things like know-how. I think know-how is probably the most general one that I can think of that comes up in almost every agreement and seems to really blur the line between information that could be deemed a trade secret under CUTSA and information that arises from a worker's general training, knowledge, skill, or experience. So I think there's going to be a lot of tension there with the enforceability of non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements as well as defining what is and is not a trade secret for purposes of enforcing restrictive covenants like
1: non-competes. So going forward, what will be permissible for a confidentiality and a non-disclosure agreement as opposed to what would not be enforceable if it was part of a non-compete? Yeah.
3: And I don't think the line on that is clear. So I'm not trying to dodge the question, Martine, but like, let's think about an example where you have someone who works in the food industry as a chef, right? Purportedly, the recipes of that restaurant that the chef works at, or maybe it's a whole enterprise and there's products that are sold on supermarket shelves that are spun off from a restaurant franchise that's become really famous and popular, All those recipes should be the trade secrets and confidential information of the business. That's not typically controversial. But how do you parse out what arises from the chef's know-how and general skill acquired through years and years of experience and what he or she could take to a potential further employer? Obviously not the recipes ingredient per ingredient or step by step if they're owned by the restaurant, but certainly it would be really Blurry, and you could take with you something really, really similar, at least the way that the current act is drafted in terms of what confidentiality
1: agreements cannot protect. So, Irina, you and I work together pretty frequently supporting the deal teams and mergers and acquisitions And often we are shown non-compete and confidentiality agreements that have extremely broad confidential information definitions. Going forward, how will your practice and counseling of clients be adjusted in light of the Colorado Act for these confidential information provisions and trade secret provisions?
3: There's two potential approaches that I can see. And one is to specifically carve out from the existing broad definitions that, you know, the foregoing definition of confidential information, which, Martine, as you know, can be like a paragraph long, excludes information that arises from a worker's general training, knowledge, skill, or experience. I think that's one approach. And then then I think it's really up to the courts and the employers and the employees to figure out what ends up in which bucket um, and probably will end up being litigated at some point. The second approach is to look at those broad, you know, paragraph-long definitions of confidential information and really take a a sharp eye to them and start saying, is know-how really confidential information of the company? Is there a way to define that more precisely what information are we really concerned about protecting? And should we be very specific and clear about that so that the employee really knows and understands what he or she can or cannot do? And I think most companies have not taken that approach. They've really eschewed that approach in terms of the very broad overarching, over-encompassing definitions. But maybe it's time to start talking about what we're really talking about in terms of protecting information.
1: Yes, and the tension arises with certain of our clients who want to protect not only what, what the employees are working on right now, but where the company may grow towards in a couple of years, and the tension is our client doesn't want to have to write and rewrite these definitions if the client moves from one space to another space, but on the flip side, their provisions are less likely to be found enforceable by a court if they're extremely broad, sweeping, and general. Would you agree? I, I do agree.
2: This is Kayla. I wanted to interrupt just to say that um, I entirely agree with that approach, Irina, um, and that's something that I've been counseling clients towards: is um, trying to get as specific as possible in these in these agreements, and and that is attention, right? Where you want to have it broad enough to encapsulate not everything that you could necessarily list out, and also you know the changing realities of technology and where the business could grow, but it seems that courts, especially in Colorado, are trying to apply these in a way that is I I mean, it's, it, it's not that it seems like it is, <laughs> that courts are
1: applying these in the most narrow way possible. Certainly. So, Kayla, earlier you addressed from a high level some of the key standout items of this new law. Let's go through those, I think, five things in a little more detail. Um, number one, there's no more management and executive exemption. And for those of us who've litigated these in Colorado, we spent a lot of time looking at whether someone falls under the management executive exemption or not. What is the new test? The new test is uh,
2: protection of trade secrets with a salary threshold that the encumbered worker earns at the time the agreement is signed and at the time of termination, um, this this threshold amount. And right now, it's, it's $101,250 that's established by the CDLE, which is the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. So there's flexibility for that threshold to change. Um, But this salary threshold is obviously going to be rife with issues concerning what uh, what constitutes salary. What do you do in a situation where an employee uh, may have started at a salary that met the threshold, but then their salary for whatever reason dipped. And at the time of termination, they no longer satisfied that part of the test. I mean, in the plain language of the statute, it would say that the agreement is is no longer enforceable for that employee. I know that the legislature tried to do the best that they could to flesh out the definition of, of, of income, um, so that it included things like bonus and commission pay, but I imagine there's, there's going to be a ton of litigation as to this question.
1: To be clear, we're talking about the salary threshold for non-compete to be enforceable. That is based on the pay calc order, and that will increase annually. Um, so a lot for employers to keep an eye on as to the value at issue. Um, Irina, will this be a shift for your practice in that every single case now going forward will have the trade secret litigation within the litigation that will have to be established up front for a non-compete to be enforceable?
3: I think that's right. I mean, so what's important to understand is that previously under the act, you could theoretically enforce a non-compete for the protection of trade secrets and then the parties get to fight over whether there really are trade secrets at issue and whether the non-compete is really for the protection of trade secrets. Now, that's not enough on its on its own, right? You also have to have the salary threshold of $101,250. I'm not sure if it will really affect that, how the parties fight about whether what's at stake is really a trade secret. What it will affect on the counseling side, though, is if companies are onboarding Employees and let's say they want to hire them at the eighty to ninety thousand dollar range, they need to understand that if they if those employees have access to what the company considers trade secrets or highly confidential information, that they eventually might want to enforce non competes with those employees, they will not be able to, and that can have a really big effect on how companies are thinking about compensating their employees what types of information they should be thinking about um, protecting or restricting access to. Let's say they have a, a technical team of folks in their 20s who are all in the seventy to $90,000 range. Guess what? You can't enforce and non compete against those employees the way that this is drafted. Um, you would either have to give them a raise to the minimum threshold or live with the fact that they could leave and go work for your competitor.
1: Which certainly was the legislature's intent. So on this the second change, Kayla, a moment ago we were just speaking about the salary threshold for a non-compete. What is the salary threshold for a non-solicitation of customers and clients?
2: So that is sixty percent of the threshold for highly compensated workers, as you were explaining, step within the pay calc order. And currently that I believe that's a a salary of around sixty thousand dollars sixty thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars annually. That is what you need to be able to in enforce a a, a non suscitation provision against a a worker and this was something that I know that was fought very hard on the business side to get this um, exception put in because initially as drafted, the bill would have required the full threshold. And there was a lot of concern that workers who made less than that highly compensated threshold would have access to customer lists or customer information and, and would be able to solicit customers or clients on behalf of the competitor without any kind of restriction. And so that's why this was put in sort of on the eve of passage,
1: actually. And for this provision, is there also a requirement for a trade secret showing or no? There is. The non-solicitation should also
3: be no broader than necessary to protect the employer's legitimate interests and trade secrets,
1: as well as having the 60% threshold. Great. So that is a big change that uh, non-solicitation of customers and clients is now explicitly covered by the statute. The next change um, that is important, the third change, is that, um, Kayla, you taught me that now certain types of confidentiality agreements are explicitly addressed by the act. Can you tell us a little bit more?
2: Correct. Uh, now, a, a reasonable confidentiality of provision is one that does not prohibit disclosure of information that arises from the worker's general training, knowledge, skill, or experience, whether that was gained on the job or elsewhere, information that is readily ascertainable to the public or information that a worker otherwise has a right to disclose as legally protected conduct. And I believe that Irina um, sort of went through that and the uh, the guardrails around that um, in, in some
1: detail earlier. So from a high level, if an employer has a confidentiality agreement, it can't prohibit the employee from sharing know-how and things that are known to the public, for example, but the employer can have a confidentiality provision protecting other information that is truly confidential to the business. Exactly. Irina, anything else to add on the confidentiality provision before we move on to the notice?
3: If a confidentiality provision is so restrictive that it starts almost looking like a non-compete, like if, it's, if you can't share anything with your next employer in a manner that would restrict you from doing your job or using your skills that you have gained over the course of your career, that confidentiality agreement is probably not going to be enforceable.
1: Thank you. And so the next change is the 14-day advance notice requirement. And Kayla, you spoke about it from a high level, but can you explain um, what now employers need to do with either newly hired employees before those employees start working, as well as existing employees?
2: So it's actually not before the worker starts working. It's before the prospective worker accepts the employment offer which is, I don't know. I think that's, I mean, it makes sense in, if, if the legislature was trying to address a situation where a worker moves across the world or moves across the country, and then they show up on their first day of work and are told, hey, you need to, you need to sign this non-compete. Like, I, I think that it makes sense in that scenario. But what, whenever you've had a, a worker sort of go all in, like put all of their eggs in one basket for a new job and then are thrown for a loop. Um, So I think that's what they were trying to do here. But what's interesting here is that conceivably, I mean, before you even, or with any sort of employment offer, you need to provide sufficient notice. And I would say best practices is you provide the notice and the non-compete agreement together. Um, when you're making the offer, and I, I mean, I know for most em- employers, they don't necessarily have all of a prospective employee's paperwork ready to go on the date that they make an employment offer. So, in terms of timing and logistics, that's something that employers need to know about. And by the way, these these new requirements, this is not just a, oh we made a mistake. Kind of requirement. These these have teeth, um, and we can go into penalties later. But any violation of these requirements are going to um, expose an employer to, to liability in the realm of of statutory penalties, attorneys' fees, and all kinds of other things. So um, these are these are requirements that really should be um, appreciated and take taken notice of. So, anyways, with a notice, we went through prospective worker. For current workers, if you're going to ask a current worker to sign a non compete, you have to give them at least 14 days um, of the earlier of the effective date of the the agreement or the effective date of any additional compensation or change in the terms or conditions of, of their employment that you may be providing in consideration for the agreement. And the notice has to be set forth in a separate document from. non-compete agreement. The notice has to be in clear and concise terms. It needs to be in the language in which you and your worker regularly communicate in. So, for example, if you regularly communicate with your workers in Spanish, then that notice needs to be in Spanish and not in English. And the, the thing is, though, that the statute provides exactly what needs to be contained in the notice, and it's pretty clear on that. So employers can rejoice in that regard.
1: Okay. And then a moment ago, you alluded to the penalties. Um, So to wrap us up on what's different, number five statutory penalties are now enshrined in the statute. What do those entail? $5,000 statutory penalty per
2: agreement per worker for presenting to a prospective worker or actually having a worker sign an agreement that is not enforceable. And by not providing the notice, for example, that makes the agreement non-enforceable. I forgot to mention that. In addition to the statutory penalty, the individual would be entitled to actual damages, attorney's fees, and costs.
1: So this is no joke.
2: This is no joke. If you're a large employer with a lot of employees and you accidentally misproviding the notice for a group of 100 employees, you're potentially looking at a pretty significant amount of liability if those employees, A, discovered that there was an issue and B, decided to file some sort of class action.
3: How accidental can the accidentally be? Is there any good faith exception if, um, if an employer
2: missteps here? There is. um, There is a safe harbor. And it's for good faith and that the employer had reasonable grounds for believing um, that their conduct or failure to do something was not a violation of the statute. In that scenario, in that factual scenario, the court may, in its sound discretion, award no penalty. So that statutory provision doesn't say that that's not a safe harbor for actual damages or for attorney's fees or for costs. That's only for the $5,000 penalty. And again, it's completely discretionary upon a a finding of good faith by the court.
1: Um, Kayla, we talked about uh, at length now about the financial penalties. So this new statute now imposes $5,000 per agreement penalty, actual damages penalty, and importantly, attorney's fees penalties. We've always had um, a misdemeanor penalty associated with the statute that got more precise. What is the new standard now for an employer to be criminally investigated?
2: As anyone who plays in this space in Colorado knows, there was a lot of um, concern Concerning changes in the last legislative session that allegedly criminalized non-compete agreements. And this was something that spread like wildfire throughout the employment law community here in in Colorado.
1: And was wrong. And was wrong. (laughs) This language had always existed, right? Right. It always existed. It just moved. And we have a great article that we'll link to that explains that. What is the standard now? So right now the way that the statute reads is
2: a person who violates subsection 1.5 commits a class two misdemeanor. And 1.5 says that it is unlawful to use force, threats or other means of intimidation to prevent any person from engaging in any lawful occupation at any place the person sees fit. Now, I read that as requiring... Some sort of threat or act of, of assault or uh, battery or other violence to pr- prohibit a person from working. And I believe that Senator Tipper, when she was, um, when she introduced HB 22 1216, one of her purposes was to clean up this confusion within the employment law community that non-competes themselves, an enforceable non-compete was somehow a misdemeanor. Now, I know that I have colleagues in Colorado who disagree with me and and would argue that if you read 1.5 broadly enough, that an unenforceable or void non-compete could potentially fall within the ambit of force, threat, or other means of intimidation to prevent any person from engaging in any lawful occupation. I think that's uh, going down the rabbit hole a, a bit much. And, and I, I personally have comfort in advising my clients that they're not going to be faced with potential criminal liability in asking their employees to sign non-compete
1: agreements. Presuming that you drafted them those lawful non-compete agreements. <laughs> lawful non-compete agreements, yes. All right. So in our final minutes, let's talk about, let's recap what's the same and what's different. Um, Irina, do you want to take us through the sames? Sure. So one of the key things that remains the
3: same is that there's a legal presumption that a non-compete is void and invalid in Colorado, but for certain exceptions. The exceptions have changed. We'll get there in our recap of what's different. The covenants related to non-competes for physicians did not change. And it's still enforceable to impose a reasonable non-compete in connection with the sale of a business with like an M&A transaction or a spin out. Um, You know, it is okay to require as part of the consideration that, um, you know, the buyer or seller doesn't engage in competition with you for a reasonable amount of time.
2: I would note because of the sort of like, FTC enforcement paradigm that we're currently in. It seems to me that any company that is is imposing non-solicitation, non-competition, or non-poaching agreements in a merger or sale of business um, has to make sure they're not running afoul of federal antitrust laws, the Sherman Act. So I just want to throw that in. The FTC has been filing enforcement actions like and on gangbusters on those types of provisions contained in in uh, sale of business and similar business transactions. And that's a great
3: point. Yeah. The Colorado law hasn't changed, but like that doesn't mean you should take your eye off your antitrust considerations.
1: And and let's get precise. You referenced those provisions. When we say those provisions, we mean a provision that says, you know, seller, you cannot um, employ anyone in this space for X period of time. That would potentially give rise to an antitrust violation, correct? Possibly. That is what we're talking about. Right. So employers can still use non-competes and other things so long as they're drafted appropriately. Last same, Irina. Yeah. One other thing that is the same is that if you entered
3: into a valid non-compete before this act goes into effect on August 10th, that still applies. This act is not retroactive. It doesn't go in and retroactively change non-competes executed prior to August 10th, 2022. That said, and Martine, I think you can talk a little bit more about this, but we are already seeing counsel argue that the new framework should be taken into consideration as a policy factor when adjudicating the enforceability of pre-August 10th, 2022 non-competes. Is that right?
1: Yes, we have already seen um, counsel argue in the context of an injunction hearing where one of the factors that is considered under federal and state law for whether or not a court should grant an injunction to enjoin, for example, the competitive activity. We have already seen uh, parties argue that Under the public policy prong of that analysis, because the legislature has indicated even more vigorously that it opposes most non-competes, that courts should strike prior non-competes. From my perspective, the statute is pretty clear that this is not retroactive, but as Irina said, parties are going to take a whack at arguing that it should, in effect, be retroactive. Um, so Kayla, want to take us through um, summarizing the differences What's different now in the new world order in Colorado going forward on August tenth?
2: No more management executive exemption to the general prohibition against non-competes in Colorado. There's now salary thresholds for non-competes, but you have to have both you have to satisfy the salary threshold and the non-competing non-compet- agreement also has to be um, for the protection of trade secrets and that salary threshold has to be met both at the time that the agreement is signed and at the time of termination. So that's the first one. Number two, salary threshold for non-solicitation of customers and clients. Currently that's around $60,000. Number three, Certain types of confidentiality agreements are now explicitly under the purview of the act. And I recommend reading the statute and getting familiar with it. If you are in a position of litigating or drafting NDA for an employee or an independent contractor, I would argue that the provision also um, limits NDAs in the context of an independent contractor relationship. Notice requirements, very important. If you don't satisfy the notice requirement, then the agreement is unenforceable. And last, the statutory penalty, $5,000 per worker, plus they could be entitled to actual damages, attorney's fees, and costs. And that's per agreement. And that's even for workers who never even come to work for you. That's people that you just presented an unenforceable or arguably unenforceable non-compete to.
1: Goodness. And, and one other difference that I'll just add on is that um, there's an explicit provision now that Colorado law is going to govern if you have a worker in Colorado. Um, arguably, that's how it has always been, but it is now explicit in the statute. So lastly, on our final topic, let's just hit on some drafting considerations and considerations regarding whether or not employers should update their agreements. Many of our clients have asked, okay, do we need to go ahead and update all of our agreements that employees have already signed? I am advising no. What about you, Kayla?
2: I'm also advising no. Um... But I think right now we're in this, I mean, obviously we're in this crucial crunch time where employers need to be re- revising all of their agreements now and not do anything going forward with new employees um, before they talk to council and make sure that they're set up to comply with the revised statute.
1: And so in effect, um, the regulated community, employers who are trying to make legitimate efforts to protect certain information such as legitimate trade secrets are going to have um, different non-competes and agreements in their system for years to come. Anything that was signed before August 10th and then their new agreements that they're going to roll out on or after August 10th. Yeah, agreed. So drafting notes, if I can summarize what you both have taught me about today, um, it sounds like going forward when an employer is revising their non-competes, non-solicitive customers and business opportunities, confidentiality agreements, reimbursement agreements, um, best practices from my perspective, again, based on what you guys have explained today would include a preamble, making very clear to the worker um, what this agreement is about, the The agreement should be in the language that the employer and the employee regularly use together. The agreement must be tethered to the protection of trade secrets if it's a non-compete or a non-solicit of customers or business opportunities. There should be an acknowledgement about that the employee earns the threshold amount of wages, depending on whether it's a non-solicit or a non-compete. The agreement should be narrowly and precisely tailored. There should be a separate advisement um, or, or notice explaining what the agreement is about, and that separate advisement should be presented to prospective employees at the time they are made an offer, or for existing employees, those employees must be given 14 days notice. So a lot of changes here on August 10th for employers. Well, Irina, Kayla, thank you so much for your time and expertise. It was a pleasure talking with you today and look forward to working with you on non-competes in perpetuity going forward.
3: Thanks, Martine. Um, Thanks for having us. And it's always great to chat about these issues.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.